Dysazopod number 345. As of the recording of this, it is the week prior to Toy PizzaCon 2023 happening July 15th, Saturday in Beacon, New York. Uh, there's an energy in the air. It is electrified. The very molecules we breathe because it is our one time of year to have a proper celebration unveil some exclusives to show what projects we've been working on in secret and to gather as a community so super excited uh we got a bunch of tpc related updates and uh some great questions so it's distazapod number 345 let's go so toy pizza con 2023 this might be the last Stazapod prior to that event. I will try to squeeze one out next week, but might be a little busy. Uh, what do we need to know? Well, the basics here are the mini Comic-Con that is happening at Happy Valley in Beacon. This is at 296 Main Street, but obviously you can check out the details online at toypizza.com. Uh, this is a exactly that, a mini Comic-Con. This is a gathering of independent creators um, right now, we're not taking new vendors. It's largely a continuation of everybody from the previous year. Uh, the way that setting up works is you bring a backpack of stuff, you grab a table, and it's going to be about two to three artists per table, and just kind of share your space. You know, this is a gathering of a community of people who like the same things and largely know each other, if only online. Uh, so let's just make this work. It is a extremely informal sort of hangout, and I don't want to be too rigid in assigning tables and going through seats and things like that. Let's just all gather and find a way to make it work. If you are not a vendor from last year, I would just ask that you queue up outside of Happy Valley, and uh, we will let people in as soon as everybody is reasonably set up. I'm Again, I'm trying to keep things relatively lax and loose, because, uh, you know, this should be just a gathering of friends, if anything else. While the courtyard at Happy Valley will open at 10 a.m., which is where most of us will be set up, the inside of Happy Valley does not open until noon. I'm working on trying to get that open a little earlier, but keep that in mind. Now, this area in Main Street is surrounded by restaurants, coffee shops, a great vegan donut place, so plenty of places to go and see and Grab a water if you need one, use the restroom, whatever the case may be. But uh, if you are a sort of fan or a customer attending, just give us some time to set up and, uh, you know, understand that the indoors to the arcade won't be open until noon onward. So just plan accordingly. Uh, good chance it's going to be pretty sunny, pretty hot out. So sunblock, wear hats, bring a parasol, bring a bottle of water, all the normal stuff you should be doing anyway. Exclusives. There is a great big bundle of pretty awesome Knights of the Slice exclusives tied to Toy PizzaCon. There will be uh, 50 bundles made available to Patreon subscribers. This is going to happen sometime prior to the show, maybe pretty soon. I am still waiting on a couple shipment confirmations. This is There are components that are going to be coming in just at the wire for this show. So uh, I don't have final cost on this bundle, but it will likely be between $150 and $200. Now, if you are not in a position to throw down $200, you 
completely understandable. After Toy Pizza Con, I will make available individual offerings of each of the items. The one exception, the only thing that might sell out is the uh, card slicer set that is special to Toy Pizza Con. There's only 50 sets of those cards. Um, your bundle is absolutely the best way to ensure you're going to get that. But uh, if not, a number of those cards will make their way into the blind bags. And, um, you know, you just kind of have to strategically weigh how important card slicers is versus the figural components of the exclusives. Uh, again, I think all the figures should make it into the store afterwards. I don't foresee them selling out at the show, but, uh, you know, a bundle pre-order offer is always going to be your number one 100% guarantee you're going to get everything. Also, if you're attending as a fan, as a customer, as a squire of the slice, um, ask the vendors if they need anything. You know, they're probably going to be stuck behind their table the entire day. And uh, I think it's always a classy move when you have friends setting up at shows. See if you can go grab them a coffee or run an errand for them. It's always extremely helpful. So, you know, offer to watch their booth while they take a leak. It's a really class act and, and a good way to sort of approach these shows. Uh, around 3 p.m., this show is going to start winding down. And you're going to have a couple hours to yourselves. Check out all of Main Street. There's plenty of things to go and see. Uh, Clutter Gallery, I, I'm not sure if they're open. I will probably send them a note and see if they maybe want to keep the uh, gallery open for uh, TPC attendees. But um, go have a burger. Go float around. Go on a hike. Walk to Dia Beacon. Walk to the waterfront. Do whatever you like. And then we will reconvene at 6 p.m. at Quinn's Restaurant. You're going to have some of the best Japanese food you've ever had. And you're going to watch Zed Star 7 play live. And we'll have this after party from 6 until 9 p.m. or whenever it sort of winds down. And uh, on the topic of Zed Star 7, I have a really excellent question I want to hop into to kick off our Q&As for today. Jeremy Price asks... I really like the Zed Star 7 tracks, Johan DeWitt and The Way You're Built, and hope to hear one or both of them live. I also really dig the whole album these tracks appear on. Do you have lyrics published anywhere, or have anything you can share about those songs, like how the arrangements were put together, or what lyrics are about, or what the tracks mean to you? Um, fantastic question. Thank you very much for this. Um, to me, and my process, lyrics are the least important thing of a song. And for those who have watched multiple live streams, you will notice that songs evolve and change and, and sort of mutate into new things, new arrangements, new lyrics, especially. Um, in the case of Johann DeWitt, that's probably the one song where the lyrics are locked in place. And uh, I do sort of faithfully try to recreate uh, that in a live setting. However, the lyrics in the recorded version... Keep in mind, both these songs were recorded, improvised 100% in one take. Uh, the lyrics in Johann DeWitt, I had to sort of decipher post facto and figure out what they were, or figure out something that was a close approximation, almost like hearing a song in Spanish and kind of translating it into English. You're not going to have a 100% translation because, you know, words don't rhyme in different languages the same way. But I, uh, I had a, a tiny road trip I had to take, and so I just listened to Johann DeWitt 
for an hour and a half on constant repeat until I had memorized or fabricated lyrics that I felt captured what the song was about. Similar process for Way You're Built. Um, I oftentimes listen back to songs and I don't know what I was saying. It's all sort of coming uh, like a fountain from the subconsciousness. I, I'm really just kind of spitting lyrics as they, as it is in the moment. I'm not thinking about them at all. Uh, Frank Black of the Pixies writes his songs this way as well, and I always thought that was pretty amazing. So that's another one that that kind of uh, has mutated for sure, but does have a pretty familiar sort of lyrical outbursts in the live versions when we're playing it currently versus that sort of original one. But both of them have definitely changed sonically, and there are some songs that you will hear a recorded version of that lyrically have sound nothing like uh, you know, their original version. In many ways, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because when I go see a band live, I want to hear exactly the album version. I don't want any embellishments whatsoever. Yet, in my practice in ZSTAR 7, we change almost every single aspect of what we're playing. When it comes to sort of deciphering the meaning of lyrics, um, you know, it's not typically something I like to do because I think that all works of art don't really exist until they're interpreted by other people. So I, I want to leave space for that, absolutely. I will say that if you Google Johann DeWitt, that gives you some insight into what sort of historical story inspired what I was singing about on that very day, and it kind of took hold and mutated from there. The way you're built, you know, uh, again, like, I don't want to get too far into providing a step-by-step -step manual of how to decipher these things, but I will say the frame of mind I try to be in when I'm singing that song, when I'm in the moment, is one for adoration of the partner you're with, of the person who has stuck with you. And if I can sort of access that emotion, everything else fills itself in. And the lyrical content precisely doesn't matter. If I can just hit that emotional note and I can inspire a uncontrollable emotional reaction in the audience, then it's a success as far as I'm concerned. Now, both of these songs are 100% in our current uh, live setting playlist. These are songs we really like playing and I think we have honed in on them in a way that is uh, you know, pretty successful. There are some songs that some weeks we feel like we have a good handle on, some weeks we feel like it's ex escaped us completely, but we roughly have about 20 to 25 songs we like to play. Uh, I don't know how long our set will be, we're just going to kind of play it by ear. It is not uncommon for us to play for two hours straight and, you know, not even think about it. Uh, but I don't really want to torture everybody after a long day in the sun, so we will, uh, I will do my best to read the room. You know, the other benefit of not publishing my lyrics publicly means when I flub a line live, nobody knows, right? <laughs> so, and that does happen quite a bit. I hear it all the time when I listen back to our live sets, uh, but I don't know if that's necessarily noticeable to somebody who's an audience member and who hasn't sung these songs hundreds of times. So um, I do like to give myself a little bit of leeway in that regard. Uh, it is also worth mentioning there are going to be Z Star 7 t-shirts. 
And I'm going to have those at Toy Pizza Con. I do not have very many. I think I have about a dozen, and I got a couple different sizes. So those are going to be first come, first serve. Um, I may only bring them to Quinn's, but if I happen to have them at Toy Pizza Con at the Mini Con, feel free to ask me, and, uh, you know, happy to break that one golden concert rule. I would like to see people wearing the Z Star 7 shirts at the concert. You know, I, I, uh, I think this is the one case where that's uh, completely appropriate. And then finally, uh, regarding how the arrangements were put together, um, I, I think I kind of spoke to this earlier, but we, our sort of process, my solo process as well as the process for the band with Brendan and with uh, Daniel, <laughs> didn't forget his name, sorry. Um, the, uh, the process there is one of improvisation. Now, like I said, we have about 20 songs. We have been honing in on those after, over the past couple months, and we do have a pretty solid live playlist. But we also love to improvise, and we love to write new songs on the spot. So there might be a little bit of that happening. Um, in terms of, like, the technical process of what's going on here, largely, I work from just the audio, the complete compiled audio from Twitch, which is has some level of compression and degradation on it. It's not pristine audio by any stretch, but a lot of the songs you see on SoundCloud, those are just pulled directly from our live streams. I find just recording every time I'm playing and chopping that up into little song bits, it's worked pretty well. That's why I'm able to put out, you know, 300 songs in, in a few years. Um, we also use a multi-track recorder. Uh, it's a Tascam. 16, I believe. So it's got 16 channels, 16 tracks. Uh, everybody sort of plugs their devices in separately. The audio records everything separately, and you can manipulate those separate tracks, vocals, guitar, keyboards. You can play around with those in a DAW separately if you want to, but honestly, I largely just work over the sort of combined track. Um, there's very few songs that I want to spend any time on and, uh, you know, I, for my process personally, it's more about just publishing it and sharing it rather than spent, wasting an entire day sitting in front of a laptop, like tweaking levels and things like that. So we try to play and let the performance be the thing that's captured and honored and try not to sort of dissect or edit or manipulate too much. Now, that definitely changes when you, when it comes to releasing an album, the songs on our first album, Seven Songs, are definitely uh, touched up and balanced and colored a little bit. But even so, those are largely just, you know, the tracks recorded as they were. Uh, and we are working, of course, on a second album. But uh, I can't dedicate any time towards that until after Toy Pizza Con. But uh, I look for an announcement on that one pretty soon. Uh, thank you very much for that question. That's a good one. While we're on the topic of music and Z-Star 7, we're going to go to our next music-related question from Valverde. Finally, a chance to go back and listen again to the band rehearsal the day after the gloss drop. Sorry, gloss drop. And you guys were on fire. You said you listen to your own music as you work. Have you been replaying this? And if so, what are your favorite parts you feel uh, came out well? I myself have a few points bookmarked, but I've been digging the song that starts at one minute 37 minutes in. Side question, if you have time, when you're visiting Z Star 7 Music, is there ever a battle taking place where you 
Think to yourself, next time I would like to draw this feeling slash tone out a bit longer versus retorting to yourself, you don't overdo it, just play it as the energy in the moment dictates, if that makes sense. So to answer the, the latter question first, um, I believe performance is everything. You know, that is, the, that is the hierarchy in which I serve. This is a lesson uh, that was sort of reinforced taking that recent Phil Weinrobe class on School of Song. Uh, I really care very little for how pristine a recording sounds, if it's panned correctly, uh, you know, if there's hiss. I don't give a shit about any of that stuff. I believe the performance is key, is everything, is paramount. If you listen to it and you understand that this is a person just uh, bleeding emotions into the microphone, I think that trumps every other aspect of the listening experience. So I do listen to our past performances while I'm working. Uh, they are a bit like game tape in which, you know, a college football player might watch previous games and figure out what went wrong and how to correct it the next time. But largely, if I make any notes to myself, um, it is just on the technical side of things. It's okay, I meant to hit the pedal at that moment and I missed it, so I gotta watch for that when the chorus comes around. It's very sort of boring and pedantic um, technical notes to myself, you know, like I didn't have the gain turned all the way up or, you know, very, very small sort of stupid notes. I think you can kind of, you can stymie and kill a performance by thinking too technically when you go into the space. Like, okay, I messed this up last time. I have to do this, this, and this when I get in there. You gotta really throw that stuff out. You gotta, you have to just truly, you know, stand on the stage and you gotta feel it all. You, you can't be in an analytical mind um, because it just, it kind of kills it. Now, this is a, a really hefty task and expectation for yourself because when you're a band the size we are and you're just playing local places, uh, you are sort of your own roadie and your own tech uh, prior to performing. So you're spending about an hour and a half troubleshooting things that aren't working with the board and with the you know house PA system. And you're, you're going through this highly dense technical checklist of things and inevitably there's always parts missing and things going wrong. So to, to kind of like come out of that intense hour, hour and a half, and then just turn on the performance gene, um, not easy to do. And I think it takes me a while to warm up performing because I've just spent this really intense block of time having everything go wrong and malfunction and, you know, speakers blow out and things like that. Um, so it, it, you know, it's a very sort of difficult balance to strike. Now, regarding the specific set the day after the Gauss drop, um, if we're being honest, I, I really only do about one playthrough of a live set, and I'm listening for songs or performances I want to clip and save, and then I don't really go back and listen to them. Um, the reason is because usually there's a brand new one by the time I would go back. So I'm always kind of uh, kind of trying to keep it current and keep it with the newest performance. There's very few times when I will listen to an entire set multiple times 
Um, sometimes if it's a completely improvised set, like a club draw session, those for me often merit uh, additional listens because it's only all new music, right? And the, the idea behind the club draw sets is creating a vibe for the creative people who are scribbling in their notebooks and, and things like that. So I find that sort of mood music to be uh, more interesting for repeat listens than just a simple Z-Star performance, if, if that all makes sense. Also, for the folks that are listening to the Twitch streams, you can, as a viewer, uh, clip audio or, or make sort of clips from the footage and save those, and they will save to the channel. So, um, you know, if you hear something you really like, try that out, and it's a good way to kind of bookmark these things. Okay, enough talking about my self-indulgent band. Let's move on to more important matters. Gordon McKinnon Hall, have you gotten a chance to play the new Zelda or any other games recently? I'm enjoying Cyberpunk 2077 right now. Um, I'm glad you asked this because I have been wanting to talk about Tears of the Kingdom for a very long time. Um, I do think this is this is probably game of the year, right? It's pretty phenomenal. I love the first uh, Zelda Switch title. And... Um, this one does not disappoint. I think the sort of the technical aspects of the game, the exploration, the building, especially, uh, it's unlike anything else. It, it, it's truly a very beautiful language that they've sort of created. Um, I also like that, like my nieces and nephews are playing it, so there's a nice connectivity with the you know younger generation. I was getting a bunch of tips from my nephew. Uh, just yesterday that I did not know and had no idea about. Um, so, yeah, great experience. I, I, as I've said before, I really only play a single game at a time, and I play it for several months and then move on to whatever the next title is. I, I don't have a ton of time for playing, so it's kind of just in between and in the margins. Um, I will say the, the biggest failing of Tears of the Kingdom and even Breath of the Wild is that I find every... NPC completely unlikable and it is Hyrule is a land of dithering idiots these are morons complete morons who don't know how to hang up a signpost or <laughs> are, are baffled by you know simple uh, shows that that link will do in front of them I, I think that it's such a huge disservice to the world uh, if you look at something like Elden Ring or any of the from soft games you interact with NPCs that you care greatly for, and you follow their sad and inevitably tragic storylines, and there's real pathos there. And I, I think that the the people that in, uh, you know live in Hyrule are just complete morons, and they all I, I don't like the character design of them. They all look sort of like waterhead grotesques. It, it's very odd. I, I'm assuming I'm missing something visually in the language of Zelda because I only really played like Link's Awakening and then had to start paying rent and video games went right out the window. I have a huge lapse in my gamer history really from like SNES N64 era until I bought a PlayStation 3 you know however many years later. I, I did not have access to gaming 
during that time because I was really just struggling to pay rent and work two jobs and, and things like that. So I'm guessing there is some history with a lot of the NPCs that appear in uh, these games and maybe people have much more affection for them than I do, but I think they look hideous and I don't like helping them and they're all very annoying. So that would be the one thing I would point to that I think the game fails on. Uh, but other than that, it's been a pretty wonderful experience. Next question from Ian Amling. Why might someone who once cherished their toy collection now find themselves no longer loving their toys, leading them to contemplate the decision of selling their cherished collection? Well, uh, you know, I think there's a myriad of reasons, and it's going to differ for almost everybody. Uh, but I do think that, you know, this pursuit of collecting toys or collecting pop culture things or whatever the case may be, it is a hollow pursuit. Um, the interesting, captivating, memorable parts about this hobby are not having the item. It is the chase in finding the item. It is the anticipation of checking a tracking number 12 times a day. It is the people who help you locate something or the squires of the slice that send you a bonus item for free. Uh, those are the sort of the actual moments that uh, propel and adhere me to this hobby. It is not the pieces of plastic in front of us. And in fact, you know, the collection starts to own you. I think I've talked about this many times. Uh, this is nobody's fault. We are just sort of here at this time and place under these conditions in which consumerism is our only outlet. You know, we can't affect anything politically. We can't uh, have change happen in that capacity. So we get to sort of buy stuff freely and uninhibitedly. And uh, it starts to become the only way you can manage emotions. And so you may get 10 years into collecting action figures and say, what, what is all this shit? You know, none of it makes me happy or very little of it makes me happy. So I think it's a perfectly natural cycle of collecting to get rid of collections to buy back things you like, it, it ebbs and flows, and I don't think anything is too precious to hold on to, you know? Maybe there's a handful of items that I've tracked down over the years that I will never find again, and maybe I would be sad if they perished in a fire, but largely, I would just be free about this. Um, I do think also, uh, we are in a real downturn in terms of the economy, however it's being portrayed. Uh, I think it's starting to peak back up a little bit based on the stats that I see for my multiple sort of income streams and, you know, all the fun analytics I get to look at. Uh, but largely, I think, you know, there are financial decisions involved in people getting out of collecting. Now, I've certainly seen it firsthand. I've had long-term squires of the slice reach out and, you know, have to... Uh, say that they're liquidating. It's, uh, it's just part of the process, unfortunately. And I think also, you know, more broadly, like somebody who's experiencing not liking the things they used to love doing, that can be absolutely a sign of depression. And maybe that's something to look at and to sort of contemplate. I think that the the hobby itself and consumerism itself is a depressing venture, right? Because you're just kind of going through the motions, buying stuff, getting stuff in the mail, opening stuff, and forgetting about stuff. 
and that can be a vicious cycle. And your if your emotions are tied to it, you get a little bit of a rush when you buy something, and then you get deflated and depressed when it arrives and that thrill is over, and you kind of repeat that cycle. Some people may need more, more, more or less examination of that phenomenon, and it might be a you know a bigger sort of uh, biochemistry issue. And you know, if that's the case, uh, I think people should examine that with a professional. Absolutely. The final thing I would say is that you know people really shouldn't have a fear about selling their collections. And they really shouldn't have a fear about if they decide to get back into it. I mean, sure, stuff can be difficult or expensive to find, and I'm sure there's some stuff that will never be found again, but who cares? We're not on this earth for very long. And, uh, you know, eBay exists, these, these collector communities exist. You can find stuff again. And so I think you just kind of, you, you flush it all down, you rebuy more and you kind of repeat the cycle. I, I don't see any shame of that. There's nothing really precious. As somebody who's sold their collection off quite a few times and done huge liquidations, um, I'm standing here today probably missing a few key pieces, probably have sold a couple grails I'll never come across again. I don't fucking care. I'm, I have a happy life. It doesn't matter. These are pieces of plastic. Next up, we got a uh, question and comment from Lance Tomimoto, and people should pay attention because there is a good lesson to be had here. There's a new seller that recently joined the Facebook group selling items who I paid in friends and family who will not send me the items, and now I'm sure, regarding their sketchy behavior and odd grammar, this is a fake scam account. I understand my money's gone, but how do I address this item to keep others from falling victim to this person? I would usually have been more weary, but I love this community a lot and tend to be more trusting when it comes to Knights of the Slice. Also, what do you think about these types of people finally invading our community? Was it bound to happen? Is this weirdly a sign of success? Have a great week, everybody. Thank you, Lance. Um, so I got to, uh, Lance sent me some information. I got to dig a little bit deeper into this scammer. And this is a person that has scammed other collectible groups. And I do not believe that the person portrayed on this account is the actual person. I think this is a normal a uh, Midwestern American guy who just got his account fished, and now that person is sort of posing as him and going around and and scamming people. Largely, I believe this because the syntax in what they're typing is not standardized American English. They are using S's instead of Z's, which is largely uh, something you would get from English schooling. So it could be a person... Uh, in India or Pakistan, as they have sort of uh, more formal English in their speaking. But this is all theory. Don't want to cast dispersions here. What I would want to say is be wary of anybody who just appears suddenly and starts selling with no other posting history at all. Uh, I would also say don't pay for things friends and family. Um, I've certainly got scammed. Everybody gets scammed in America. I think we talked about this before. It's just a question of how big you get scammed for. So I wouldn't have any shame about it. It's going to happen to everybody. And I see this more as a failing of the platforms itself than necessarily an indictment of Knights of the Slice or our community growing too big. This is this is sort of built into doing business online. And uh, finally, I would say use references. If you haven't bought from somebody before, we have a great community. You know where to reach everybody. Just ask, hey, has anybody bought from this guy? Any any uh, transactions you want to tell me about? 
Um, so I'm sorry this happened. It will probably happen again to people, but let's kind of watch each other's backs. And, you know, this person has been banned permanently from the group, even though I don't think the account is actually them. But uh, I've taken precautions as well. Next up, I'm heading to the super secret Discord. What is a Discord? Discord is a fancy message board. How do I get access to it? You get access to it by being a patron of patreon.com slash Destasio. And guess what? I have free access available. All you gotta do is sign up. That's easy enough. Maybe kick in five bucks if you like what you're hearing. Anyway, we got a question here from Jerry Bow. He says, he asks, I like the feature Anchor used to have where it listed the chapters of a Dostazopod. Do any other platforms offer this feature? So what Jerry has noticed is that Anchor, the podcasting app that I have recorded all my Dostazopods on, was bought by Spotify. And almost immediately, the sound quality went down and they started stripping away features from the free version of uh the podcast uh the chapter separation yes this is part of what spotify has thrown away and uh they've completely reconfigured it and uh i'm not happy about it but this is what happens in our world right this is uh this is what having a profit motive for every aspect of life does we are now entering this really interesting period of time where Things stop working. And you got to think about that. Like, you know, I grew up the last analog generation pushing VHS tapes in. I remember Betamax even, listening to cassette tapes, etc., etc. All the shit that people complain about on Twitter and Instagram. Yes, that's me. Uh, the, the sort of trajectory of technology has always been a beneficial one to me. Uh, you know, in like 96... I had AOL, and I could connect with other toy collectors on Raving Toy Maniac, and that was incredible. That was a a big boon for me. And every other technological development and the expansion of the web has benefited me greatly. I do what I do because I grew up at the right time understanding the technological tools available to me. But now, we're in this sort of late stage where everything has been commodified, And the decision has been made that the internet is for advertising. And so we need algorithms, this kind of religious influence, to to give the thumbs up or thumbs down to content. You're either part of the algorithm or you're not. And also, this is all about sort of selling eyeballs, selling ads, selling information, selling data. So inevitably, the good features get paywalled, they get stripped out, they get cancelled. And we are left with devices that don't function. Yeah. When is the last time you got a phone call that was actually from somebody you knew? My phone is, is largely unusable. I have it turned off for most of the day because it's constantly ringing with spam. And I'm constantly getting texts that are these elaborate, involved fantasies constructed by probably chat GPT or whatever. And, uh, you know, are all scams. We're, we're in the era of the sort of the full scam, where it's all out in the open and apparent. And if you have older parents or grandparents, they've no doubt fallen victim to this stuff. 
it's bad. There is a there is a pervasive toxicness in all of these technological platforms that used to greatly benefit us. And so we don't know what happens from here. It's it's we can't sort of put the genie back in the bottle, but I would say that the process of using Twitter, using Instagram, trying to promote your business on any of these places, it is a futile effort. And uh, I don't know what happens next, but I can say that as a creator, you have to be agnostic to certain platforms because features are going to get stripped away. They're going to get paywalled. They're not going to work anymore. And so, you know, I will just kind of do my best to stay ahead of the curve here and let you guys know when one sort of focus for us dies and another picks up. You know, we stopped doing YouTube content because that stopped making sense. We largely, you know, I only post on Instagram under Toy Pizza now for announcements, for sales or events or things like that. I really, you know, I'm not too involved in uh, sort of contributing to that platform. And at a certain point, Patreon's going to go through this and... You know, Kickstarter seems to have gone through this a little bit as well. This is just, uh, this is how it's going to be. I guess the end game is that grand idea I have for just a mail order catalog and no other communication. (laughs) So we will see if that comes to fruition. Uh, I'll just have to keep my P.O. box in perpetuity for that that very example. But uh, yeah, I feel for you. It was a nice feature. I'm sorry it's gone. I'm assuming at some point... uh, Yeah, I will probably have to get off of Anchor completely, and then, you know, I don't know, I'll still do a Distazapod, but it'll probably just be for Patreon, if I I had to guess. Next up from Skywalking, do you think we will see some sort of Frankenslice figures featuring Goss parts? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I know I said we were done talking about Goss, but folks, I got my paint samples just yesterday. They are... Staggering. Incredible. Um, Typically, when I get a paint sample, I'm excited for a couple hours. I take some photos, and then I don't care. I'm ready for the next thing. In this case, I think there's some stellar stellar figures here. Instantly, these new narratives and new characters popped out of the woodwork and started expressing themselves to me. I I think this is the best job I've done in designing a, a production wave. And I'm very much looking forward to rolling this out. Uh, For those interested, I would keep a close eye on the upcoming Klyos O'Neill drop. And then, of course, as I've alluded to, there will be two Goss fully painted in the Toy Pizza Con exclusive bundle. So we got some more of those coming out. And I would say every single fully painted Goss is absolutely fire. It is all bangers. Um, You're going to love every single style. So let us keep the Goss train going. Next question from the Robot Assassin. With the U.S. now issuing a strong recommendation to Americans that they avoid traveling to China, will you and other glass makers and O'Neill Design now switch to video conferencing with the factory? And uh, the Robot Assassin is pointing to an AP News article that is headlined, U.S. recommends Americans reconsider traveling to China due to arbitrary blah, blah, blah. blah. The U.S. is recommending... Because of arbitrary law enforcement, exit bans, and the risk of wrongful detentions. Um, So, what I really would sort of put out there to everybody listening to this, 
and anybody who consumes any news source in the United States is there is always going to be a very heavy bias against China in any of the reporting. And we should be incredibly skeptical anytime they talk about that country. And if you need further proof in this, there's this really beautiful collage that was put together. I saw it floating around on Instagram. And it showed uh, covers of The Economist magazine and how many times they, they put China on the cover and they have a sort of gruesome dragon and a very sort of fiery rhetoric about what they're doing and how they're destroying the American economy in X, Y, and Z. It is important to understand that this is the current global ideal, is that the U.S. is being threatened by China, and uh, we have to sort of discard all this bullshit and really understand that what we're reading in mainstream news, which we consider to be trustworthy and scientific is not that it is in fact propaganda that you know along with both sort of sides of the aisle in congress they're all sort of pointing to and edging for a nuclear engagement with china and uh i don't want that so we really have to be skeptical and disregard um news items like this or at least I don't want to say do your own research, but I would say you need to have skepticism about every single piece of news you get from CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, Fox News, doesn't matter. If it is a corporate news entity, skepticism is required. It's not even recommended. The other point of clarification that I think we should make here is that um, I believe to my knowledge, the only glios makers that have gone to China are myself, Matt Dowdy, and Jesse Moore. Uh, happy to be corrected if I'm wrong on that, but largely, uh, the other glios makers do not make the journey over there. Um, and I don't know, I don't think that is necessarily crucial to the production of their goods, so I'm not sure it's a necessary thing anyway. Um, but I would say that, you know, for the past pre, let's see, how many years has it been since the pandemic? I don't even know. But um, I've been the the sort of person making the journey over there twice a year prior to the pandemic. And then, you know, I'm hoping to go this year as well. So I don't think there's much of a change in terms of what they're able to get done there. I do benefit greatly from going and breathing the same air as a the factory and and getting to oversee personally a lot of these projects. Um, this does not change my travel plans. Uh, I go to Hong Kong anyway, and that is my base of operations with the potential for day trips or overnight trips to mainland China. And none of this news would affect my ability to do that. I would still go. I would still be based in Hong Kong. I can have factory people come meet me should I not be able to get into China. Um, I do understand that they are not issuing new visas, but I have a visa and it is still valid. So I may be in a unique position to be able to go into mainland China um, uh, because that visa sort of predates um, a lot of, you know, um, COVID and everything else. I think also there's, there's this real bullshit notion that like going to China is like 
<laughs> crossing Soviet checkpoints and having AK-47s pointed at you and, you know, the threat of being imprisoned is incredibly great. Uh, I've done it many times. I can tell you it, that is not the case. Why would they want to detain somebody like me just to create a sort of awkward political situation for themselves? If, if they start to do that, their manufacturing is going to dry up because the U.S. is the biggest customer of manufacturing of plastics over there. So, um, you know, I think it's important not to sort of take these things at face value and to, uh, you know, to just kind of have a, a very thick lens of skepticism when you view any of this stuff. Uh, but to answer the question, uh, it doesn't change anything for me. I will sort of go to Hong Kong and I will read the ley lines. I will have my sort of uh, local people tell me if it's safe to go in, if there's any been any issues, anything like that. And if not, I'm going to do it. Uh, last time I was in China was during the student protests. This was uh, 2019. And the train I was supposed to take was, as the Chinese government claimed, uh, sabotaged. And so uh, my trip got moved a day and I took that train the very next day. Now, whether or not that was sabotaged by students or that is cover for something else, I cannot say. But, um, you know, there were sort of protesters and riot gear all over the place when I was there and uh, came back okay. So um, I will just stick to the people on the ground that know what they're talking about and make my decisions based on that. Next up, we got another great Ian question here, this time on the Discord. Tell us about the most memorable party you ever threw, what made it so unforgettable and unique, and how did it leave a lasting impact on you and your guests? Um, I would say almost a year to date, last Toy Pizza Con is exactly this. It was, uh, it was just brilliant. It was, uh, it was everything I hoped this year is. It was a gathering of friends, old and new. It was celebration of all the projects we're working on and uh it just felt great the the one takeaway i had from last year was that i did way too much and i tried to host people on friday night i tried to have a bunch of people stay at my place i you know i worked all day at the show came back and grilled for a few hours for everyone and uh it was too much so this year i've i've sort of pared it down and I really have, there's been a lot of extra stuff I wanted to throw on and a lot of ideas. And I've just kind of discarded all of them and said, I just need to put the show on in a bare minimum fashion. And I got to tell you, I, I feel much better for it mentally. Like I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this. I know it's going to be a lot of work, but uh, I think I'm in a, a very good place. So I would say, uh, you know, the best sort of parties combined all the senses. So you want to have good food. You want to have good music. You want to have friends old and new, like I said. And you just want to have a good vibe. And if you can put that stuff together, I think you got yourself a memorable event. Final question for today from Brett Barnacle. Every so many years, I dip my toe back into a fantasy toy line that's usually at retail. However, as of late, there isn't much in the way of a castle-themed toy line, let alone Lego. What are some fantasy toy lines you recommend that are affordable? 
Um, this is a great question, and I, I'm with you on this. And I think I, I, I feel the strong urge to spend the second half of the year working on the fantasy realm, you know, with the Jagged Age and Cray and Hobbes story. Um, how this may manifest is, you know, first and foremost, the manga, which is still being worked on by Renosa. I'm just, I'm letting that guy cook because he is great. He's turned in some pretty fantastic pages. But also, I have been tinkering with the notion of doing more figures in from the Jagged Age world. And I'm not entirely sure how this will sort of uh, come to bear, if it will ever be a real physical product. But I would say I'm pretty heavily into the exploratory phase of all this. So um, I'm with you. I think there should be more fantasy toy lines in the three and three quarter inch scale. Uh, I don't see anything on the horizon that's really coming to uh, satisfy that need. So I suppose I'm going to have to do it myself. Um, what I can say is that there are a couple older lines that I like a lot that I think a lot of people slept on and that um, are pretty damn good. Both of them are from uh, the company Play Along that later became the Bridge Direct. And uh, for those who are, for those Jesse heads who are deep in the lore, you'll know Play Along Toys was the first job I ever had in the toy industry. Um, and uh, actually, my direct boss, Rick Watkins, uh, he was the product manager of both these lines, and they're they're pretty fantastic. So look up the Chronicles of Narnia figures. Um, these are fantasy themed. They are pretty great. But as I'm looking here on eBay, actually the prices have kind of gone up in the past couple of years. So um, boy, this may not fall into the category of affordable, it seems. But uh, they're truly some pretty great ones uh, that uh, work really well. Also, I, this was not on my list, this just came to me all of a sudden, but the Zazzle Pirates of the Caribbean figures, I think those are a great custom base for making some fantasy figures. You can even maybe make some custom Bloodborne figures with uh, the stock bodies. Uh, but anyway, the second line I wanted to recommend to everybody was the Hobbit line that the Bridge Direct made, which, um, not great movies, I'll be the first to admit that, but incredibly great figures, really, really well done articulation, a lot of um, softer plastics for the chainmail, uh, uh, sheaths for the swords, like, it's really, really well done. Um, again, may not be the easiest thing in the world to find, but uh, they went pretty deep into that line, and there are some great fantasy figures, so um, that's another one you can kind of look out for. But other than that, um, yeah, it's not much out there. It's kind of a shame. I guess we have Super 7's uh, Dungeons & Dragons reaction figures that are based on the cover art from the Dungeon Master guides. I think those are pretty great. I'm going to pick up that set for sure. But um, yeah, I think that there's a niche out there that's not being filled in the market, and I'm aiming to fill it. So we will see how that happens. Now with that, we are done with our Q&As, and I'm going to leave today with a, a segment that seems to be pretty popular. I had quite a few people reach out and say they loved hearing an old Zed Star 7 song followed by a new Zed Star 7 song. So we're going to do that again today. The song I'm going to feature is Teeth Falling Out. This is a song uh, that I love and that we will be playing live. So I'm going to put up 
the original demo, and then I'm going to put up a more recent take on it. And what I would say is uh, Teeth Falling Out is very interesting because that is just Dan and myself. This is prior to Brendan coming and joining us. And the second version would be with Brendan and with proper recording uh, setups and, and things like that. So very interesting. I cannot wait to play this song for you guys live on July 15th. So I hope to see you all there. Pizza out. <laughs> 